Hey, teachers. Sorry it's been so long. Um, a lot has happened in these past few months. I hope you're making the best of this extended time at home. And if you, uh, if I can make one request, it's to allow your students time to explore their learning rather than just give them more busy work. They need guidance, but also to figure out their own way. Let them sleep, spend time with family, and read for pleasure. My own goal with this current quarantine situation is to record more podcasts, create more material in other formats. Um, I even painted a little bit. Uh, quick note on this specific episode, I had to cut it into two parts. There's a lot more that I have to say about the topic of curiosity than I even thought. Um, I'm thinking of this episode as the backstory and rationale, while the second part will be more focused on action slash solutions. The coming episodes uh, for this podcast, I've decided would, will largely build on the previous episode that covered the creative process by focusing on each part in what I consider to be the roadmap for teaching creativity. Oh, and by the way, my infographic uh, of this roadmap or diagram, if you will, which includes three phases and six steps for the creative process, along with other pillars and crucial concepts, is currently on my webpage, which I recently relaunched at chrissecora.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-S-Y-K-O-R-A.com. As my students like to say, chrissycora.com. Um, I also recently completed a TED Talk. It was actually a few weeks ago. At this moment, I'm unsure when it will be available. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted that process, which was already a bit behind. I'm really anxious to share it, so I hope it's available by the time you're listening to this, but I haven't heard back in a week, so uh, it's doubtful. It will also be posted on my website. I'll share the heck out of it. Uh, on the Hey Teachers Facebook page and the Hey Teachers Instagram as well at Hey Teachers Pod. In it, uh, in the TED Talk, I cover the three phases and six steps in a bit of detail. But keep in mind, uh, TED Talks are supposed to stay under 18 minutes. My original script, which was already a very edited version of what I would say, uh, what, what I would have said in a presentation or a workshop or say on a podcast, uh, was at least at 40 minutes. Uh, it was a 40-minute talk originally, um, and I had to cut that back. I mean, my premise for all this work is that creativity is the big human intelligence and that it connects all other intelligences leading to authentic learning. Uh, it's simple and extremely complicated at the same time, uh, so there's a lot of content to cover, and I'm excited to dig into all of it one step at a time. Previous podcast episodes, and the TED Talk only scratched the surface of this stuff. I might also start filtering in episodes that portray more of the subtle or intimate aspects of creativity, uh, such as like incubation or big C versus little c creativity, uh, but then explore them in, in bigger ways. Um, I also started a blog on my website uh, which is a great format to explore these more subtle, nuanced um, sources, uh, these elements, without having to spend an hour on it. This, this episode will focus on the soil 
through which we cultivate the creative process. Or in other words, some of the overarching structures that develop the foundation and also on some of the introductory prequel steps I take into my process with students. Uh, Again, that'll be broken in the second two parts, though, and the second part will be more about those practical applications. I should also preface that all of this, much like the creative process is a fluid process that I intend to ebb and flow, uh, to circle back and forth, and I intend to enjoy the journey. I'm not completely sold at this point on anything, and I welcome the feedback on every and uh, especially this thought, Uh, but I'm not sold that the creative process ever arrives at a destination nor am I married to my own structure for the creative process. What I know is that creativity can be taught as much as any other subject can, and that I have found a roadmap that works in an educational setting for me and for some others as well. Ultimately, if you have followed along with my work and end up listening to the TED Talk, there are three major facts or maybe pillars, if you will, that that drive my educational philosophy. Um, the first one is that creativity is widely considered the number one skill needed in the world. I'm sure you've heard me said this before, but I believe it is the big human intelligence that drives and connects all other forms of human intelligence. Creativity is at the nature of growth and what makes humans unique. Well, I mean, on this planet anyway. And yet, it's rarely, if ever taught in schools... Yada, yada, yada. You've heard, you've heard this from me um, and uh, Sir Ken Robinson and more. I feel like I, I must sound like a broken record right now. The takeaway for this pillar, though, is that creativity is the major lens we should be applying to education and the one that will lead to the education renaissance that's about at least 50 years overdue. My second major pillar is that school is not a race. On the surface, this seems like a crazy, obvious point. But it's a very real reality that we have made of school a race. But what's even more crazy is that we made it a race in which we expect everyone to finish at the exact same time and run in the exact same way. To expect all students to run through a marathon of content within a prescribed process and all come to the exact same place by the end of the quarter or just a specific unit is frankly absurd. And this is like a sub-pillar between two and three, the idea that everyone should know the exact same things, hold the same facts, have the exact same useless information they can look up in their phones is also pretty crazy. But really, it's damaging to the human spirit and conditions that inspire a thriving society in which variety uh, and, and experts in diverse fields connect to share their mastery in the creative process. The third pillar is that autonomy is fundamental to learning. The Webster definition of autonomy is the quality or state of being self-governing, also the right of self-government. Quote, the territory was granted autonomy. The second part of the definition is that it's self-directing freedom and especially moral independence, the personal types. Every single one of the thousands of students I have ever worked with are unique individuals with unique skills and challenges, personalities, interests, fears, abilities, intelligences, etc. And they learn in different ways. Um, I could say this on my own children, of my nephew, uh, who also lives a lot of his time, spends a lot of his time with my kids. They're 
They're all raised in the same house and yet so different. Our current structure doesn't allow for much autonomy among students. Piaget, the Swiss psychologist, uh, was right when he said that one of the mo- uh, that one must possess affection towards the subject to truly learn it. And I would add that metacognition is the true form of learning. And so I think we should conceive of an education system in which students have agency to drive their own learning experiences, inspiring themselves and others to dive more deeply into content, reflect on their thinking, and then ultimately fulfilling the cycle by actualizing their learning through the creative process, putting their learning into the world, the result of the three pillars. So as I briefly mentioned, this episode is really about curiosity, which is the soil creating the foundation for these types of experiences in which learning is experience. And so with those pillars in mind, I accept a great deal uh, of duality in my own conceptualization of the educational process. I have found that I can have and really enjoy holding together two truths that seem in conflict at the same time. Um, Quantum physics tells us that an atom can be in two places at once and that the universe is largely largely a construct of of our minds. And so it is... Uh, that perspective changes the nature of reality and truth. In more simpler terms, context is everything. This means that two very contrasting points of view can be equally true. This does not negate facts, which are not as open to perception, such as like two plus two equals four. My point is that I'd love to hear your perspectives, um, especially those that seem to contrast with my own, because that will help myself and everyone else form a more complete view of the creative process and learning that can serve a greater variety of people. It really is shocking just how much creativity is misunderstood, especially given how important it is. And I know I've already said this so many times, but it's that prevalent. In most of my readings and media collecting on on this subject and learning, uh, there is one strong similarity. It's often the opening statement of a book, dissertation, article, speech, etc., Quote, creativity is the most important, yada, yada, blah, blah, blah. This is often followed by a statement on just how important it is to human development. I also know there are a lot of people out there who believe the creative process cannot be taught, that it's a spontaneous event which occurs when the environment is just right or something like that. While this might fall in line with the magical view I disagree with about how creativity manifests, well... There are actually there is actually a lot of truth to that spontaneous notion of it, but it isn't the that kind of what isn't that really what teaching is? Create the environment in which specific experiences and neural connections happen. Something I used to say all the time to students is that as a teacher, I do not learn you; you learn. I cannot I can't go inside a student's head and just shove thoughts, ideas, or specific understanding into the brain. They have to make it happen, and so much of that process is out of our control. It involves connections to experience and prior knowledge. It requires inspiration, eagerness, freedom, to just name a few. And since everyone is different and have different experiences, it is the student's brain, not the teacher, that is most responsible. Keep that in mind as we go throughout this episode, but this is also why I embrace freedom and structure so much, because the learning process is an art, not a science. It's a dance between so many different factors, and we haven't even gotten into the big equity issue that's always in the room. 
it's basically the nature versus nurture argument. And I totally understand why some people perceive creativity as a spontaneous action. A lot of complex things are happening to cause those effects, which can seem like a magical process if you're not looking closely enough. But creativity is not magical. Uh, it's not something that just pops into existence out of nowhere. Um, nor, as I just said, is it an exact science. Unless you're talking about the Big Bang, that popped out of nowhere. Uh, or did it? I don't know. Who really knows what happened there? Um, there are, however, parts of the creative process that are more like a science, especially when relating to domain skills. Think of the technical approach in industrial design to engineer a product, the math and computer skills needed to facilitate the work step of that creative process, or in art, the technical aspects of understanding the medium and how to apply it in specific ways to yield specific results. This is because creativity is the big intelligence bringing all other forms of human intelligence, and there are many, together for a common goal. And just like a math equation, you can often get the same answer with a different equation. Six minus two equals four, just as one times four equals four. Same answer, different equation, both scientific. I mean, how many different ways can you get to the answer of four? Gosh, that's sort of creative. It gets really creative when you start to apply the number four to something meaningful, valuable, or relevant to the world. What does the number four really represent? And likewise, and maybe more appropriate for the creative uh, creativity point I'm trying to make, is that one equation can result in multiple correct answers. Within the creative lens, 2 plus 2 might equal 4, but also 46 or 1,200. That fact might make the process appear random or spontaneous, but there is a cause and effect if you look closely enough and in the right places. I think that's often missed because creativity is more complicated than people give it credit for, and it involves many attributes that are absent from our regular educational experiences or vernacular. I also think people in education are looking with the wrong lens or through a significant bias. This is why I created the three phases and six steps for teaching creativity in an educational environment. A lot of my educational experiences are framed within the advocacy lens because I entered into the field, this field, with the goal of changing things on a systemic scale and quickly found myself in various leadership roles due to my background in uh, management before becoming a teacher. The phases and steps are a diagram to help everyone understand and visualize the process more clearly. This is meant for use with students, but it's really other teachers and administrators that I've met with um, that it's really focused on them um, because I want them to understand it. I've met with hundreds of legislators, educational leaders, and administrators, and I've received that blank stare when I talk about the fundamentals of why students are struggling because they lack the creative process in their lives. Having a diagram helps to illuminate, illuminate, illuminate and point out the, well, the obvious of it all. So let's just quickly review uh, my three phases and six steps before getting into uh, curiosity. So the three phases of my creative process for teaching is uh, curiosity, is the first one which we're going to talk about today then creation uh, and then critique and then within those are the steps the whole thing and all of learning really starts with curiosity which is what this episode will focus on again in large part 
This phase is a, about reaching out outward to make personal connections that motivate and fuel the entire process. This phase, in my opinion, includes the first three steps. Influence uh, or inspiration. Uh, to steal the Isaac Newton quote again, creation requires influence. And then we move into the second step, which is connections to combine your thoughts and the thoughts of others, combining the inspirations. Uh, and this really reveals the derivative nature of creativity that we need other people and we're working with other people always. To get to the third step, which is innovation or transformation, taking everything you have just connected to or learned and filtering it through your imagination and prior experiences. So when you really start to filter the, the outward stuff inward a little bit uh, and involves uh, really leading to the problem solving um, period by imagining and using our imaginations, uh, imagining the multiple possibilities and coming to new realizations. And then we enter the creation phase while still problem solving, which goes more inward, focusing on immersive experiences and allowing our thoughts to manifest into physical action, uh, which I believe, is, believe uh, that experience is what cements neural connections and therefore learning, and I'll build on this a lot in this episode. The fourth step, then, is to prototype. Uh, this means testing our assumptions through drafts and sketches that take what's inside our heads and puts it into the world to reflect on and continue evolving. This is when we start to connect the head, heart, and hand together. You are taking the emotional and logical processes into the physical. It's a great time to embrace failure and receive feedback because now other people can see what you're thinking uh, in the physical world. The fifth step is the work, the hard part, the 10,000 hours of practice needed to master something. This is largely when domain skills are focused on, but also when we establish a conversation with ourselves through that working process where you do something, you put it out into the world, and then you listen to it. Um, when students are making paintings, I often say that that's what you're doing. You're kind of forming this conversation with yourself where you make something, think about it, respond, learning, reflecting uh, within the context of full immersion into a process. This is a meaningful rigor, not busy work because we're deeply connected to it. And though critique is the final phase, it really should happen throughout and often sends us back to the first phase. And it's inherently uh, collective or collaborative. The sixth step, sixth and final step, which is part of the critique phase, is reflecting, which is qualitative assessment, taking criticism by fully embracing a growth mindset, the feedback loop of the creative process. It is inherently collaborative. We need to utilize other people's perspectives in order to see ourselves more cle clearly and more completely. It helps us to see beyond our own biases. Um, and a lot of what I'm going to talk about today with curiosity speaks to those biases, um, which I believe is required to open up to learning. Reflection allows us to let go of our ego in the name of progress for everyone growing from that soil of curiosity. I think of these step, these six steps and phases more as a big picture diagram that makes it easier for educational leaders to comprehend and for students to visualize and then utilize in their learning and the general path towards authentic experiences of value to themselves and the world. The work is really during the in-between, the conversations, struggles, reflections, epiphanies, uh, and this doesn't exactly manifest the same way for everyone. 
Let me share a conversation I recently had with a student who was experiencing anxiety between innovation and the prototype steps, which involves a great deal of, of problem solving, like I pointed out, which involves decision making, which then carries the anxiety with it, especially for certain students. I'll probably write a blog post about anxiety and creativity. Uh, maybe I'll even find that I have enough to fill a podcast about that. Anyway, the student was stuck between really stuck between steps three, uh, innovation and four, prototype, and super stressing out about it. They had their influence, their goal, their basic concept, and all the materials. They've made a lot of connections uh, with a variety of media and resources, and we're starting to sketch out multiple ideas on a tablet before moving to a physical canvas, which in this case was a roller skate. Uh, the student was going to do some painting on a roller skate they had found. And of course, they didn't want to make any mistakes when working on the roller skate. And they were starting to stress out and feel anxiety, and they were losing traction, and they had a lot of traction coming into this point. If used correctly, I actually think these can be positive feelings in the right environment and with the right supports. But anyway, having the creativity diagram with the easily identifiable steps and phases helped me to explain to this student what was happening, brought it down to earth, to a much more comprehensible experience and allowed them to reflect on what they were experiencing. It allowed the student to embrace and then find support. We talked about how people feel anxiety most at certain parts of the creative process, many at this particular point because of the choices and problem solving uh, taking place and the commitment uh, because of the per uh, permanence of the next jump of moving from, they were moving from curiosity into the creation phase or in other words, the action. And then we talked about how these feelings of anxiety often, also often manifest later in the, at the end of the process. Students really struggle with the finishing part for similar reasons. This exchange was an act of metacognition and brought together socio-emotional learning with logical thinking. The student ended up commenting on how once they get past this part, they will really enjoy the work stage of just immersing themselves in the process and enjoying the ride, but that this part took more mental effort. Uh, the work took more physical. Then I responded uh, by asking, well, how do you perceive that effort? On a scale, is it higher or lower? And right now, you are at your desk plugging away on a tablet, making digital marks on the screen. These marks are less focused because your brain is, is more focused on the thought behind them. In a day or two, you'll be plugging away on the physical roller skate, making marks with paint on the surface with extreme focus on the mark itself. These two acts appear to involve the same amount of effort. The student thought for a bit, uh, and then responded, well, maybe effort is the wrong word. I'm thinking more right now, and I have to focus a lot of energy on that thought. It's physical and mental, which feels like more effort. And then I replied, you mean having to be mindful of your actions and reflecting on them is different than just doing something? So, hey, teachers, are the majority of our students just making the motions or are they thinking about their thinking and being mindful of their actions, motivated by affection because they are interested in what they are trying to put into the world while imagining multiple possibilities and caring deeply with about the impact? Well, you already know what I think about that. So um, just as a quick review, in the last episode, 
uh, where I went into specifically about creativity a bit. I know there haven't been that many podcasts, uh, but we covered creativity uh, and the steps a little bit. We discussed like imagination. Um, one of the next episodes, we'll dive into that in greater depth. There'll be a part two to curiosity, and then imagination will be shortly behind. Uh, we talked about the neuroscience of creativity, how creativity is inherently collaborative and der- derivative, how creativity is the core operating system for learning or big intelligence. Briefly covered the six steps of creativity, and I touched upon the importance of curiosity. Briefly connected to a great foundational resource in the Everything is a Remix videos, which we also need to go a little bit deeper on, but you can really uh, do the homework yourself by going to everythingisaremix.com and watching these videos yourself. Uh, just click on the, the watch tab at the top of everythingisaremix.com uh, or check out the TED Talk by Kirby Ferguson. Kirby Ferguson is the person who made all these videos. I'm going to go into each of these elements in greater detail at some point and explore new themes such as like risk and play and the need to create a safe space that promotes awareness and one of my new favorite words, ostrane, uh, ostrane, which means literally making strange. It's a Russian word. Look it up. It's spelled O-S-T-R-A-N-E-N-I-E, ostrane. Uh, and again, it means literally to m- making strange. I love it. Uh, I also want to focus more on specific units I use in the classroom and connect to socio-emotional learning more deeply, which will come up a bit in this episode because curiosity connects to it so well. Um, and because socio-emotional learning is such a foundation to all learning as curiosity is. As I say in my TED Talk, ignoring SEL for the sake of academics is like asking students to jump before we teach them to walk, which is also why we need to talk about curiosity right now, because it is foundational. Uh, As I also say in my TED Talk, it is the soil for learning. So here we are. Curiosity. It's one of the biggest elements that keeps coming up in my research, and uh, its importance is is brought up often. The focus uh, of a great many words. From a neural point of view, it appears to be vital. It comes up in research about neuroscience and learning, in the neuroscience of mindfulness and socio-emotional learning, and even the neuroscience of addiction, habits, and changing behaviors, all of which I'll cover during this episode. But for now, let me preface one more time that it is the soil through which we grow creativity. And I would extend that to all learning. Um, honestly, without curiosity, it seems I'm not sure we can call any of the results truly learning. Um, and in case you're interested, whereas curiosity is the soil, imagination is the light. Everyone knows that Einstein failed at school, but few have ever really learned why. It's because he couldn't handle the factory approach to learning. He eventually fled that traditional system and ended up in a progressive Swiss school, Swiss school that he said nurtured his curiosity. And he's famous for saying, I have no special talent. I'm only passionately curious. Curiosity is the soil because it puts us in the mental state required to be open to the world, to build relevance in the content and take chances. It encourages the desire to master something and it gives us the passion to do it in, some, in service of something larger than ourselves. In other words, it's growth mindset. 
Research suggests that there are several types of curiosity with different strengths, and they are often dependent on a variety of environments and stimuli. I disagree with some of the conventional thinking on this, um, or I would actually say like I have an argument going on in my own head about it. Uh, but in a few instances, I think what some refer to as a different form of curiosity is actually a different form of motivation altogether. We'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, there has been some great research in the realm of neuroscience on the topic. There are several specific genes associated with it and also the need to explore the world. That a major function of curiosity is to build receptors in the brain for the neurotransmitter dopamine uh, or through the neurotransmitter dopamine. Some research has suggested that people are born with certain biological attributes that promote curiosity. In fact, Einstein's brain is said to have more transmitters that are responsible for sending information from one side to the other and back again, which could have enhanced his creative connection power across seemingly different subjects, but also generated curiosity more easily. However, it is not enough to comprehend curiosity as just the interaction of genes, hormones, and organisms. It is necessary to take into account the interaction of experience, of ideas, and images, and fantasies as well. For instance, how does risk come into play? Imagine for just a minute a childhood in which exploration and play are an extended, for an extended period of time. Just being able to wander and explore maybe in a forest which they come across a variety of sights, textures, and sounds, or even to explore a museum on their own, slowly walking and observing, running and playing. Imagine this being frequently used as a feeding ground for curiosity and inspiration for learning in a specific child, and that this extended into their adolescence and adulthood. Wouldn't this contribute to an inquisitive exploratory behavior later in life? without necessarily the genes or biological factors being there. My four-year-old son recently found a really interesting bug in the forest. We snapped a picture and then we got home, we found it on the internet and learned about it. Turns out it's a rare and going extinct. It's going extinct because their habitat is being destroyed along with some other factors. You can imagine the multiple points of learning connections and where it could extend from just, this was just from taking a walk uh, he ended up drawing a picture and wrote his name, uh, wrote its name on a piece of paper. Two psychologists at the University of Michigan have been digging into the mechanisms behind wanting and liking as neuro neurologically based systems. Liking and wanting are essential to understanding curiosity. Um, it's significant in the effort to understand that curiosity more deeply and is also part of the dissection of curiosity into multiple types. Their research describes wanting as a means by which dopamine is produced, whereas liking involves more opioid production. The two major types of curiosity extending from this notion is the distinction between D-type and I-type curiosity. D-type is curiosity is experiencing a feeling of deprivation. D is for deprivation. Um, and this is where I have some disagreement. But anyway, and then, uh, and then there's curiosity as a feeling of interest. I, D-type and I-type, I is for interest. Much of this work actually comes from uh, also Jordan Littman. Um, he's a researcher, and in 2005, he published a paper in the journal Cognition and Emotion titled 
curiosity and the pleasure of learning, wanting and liking new information. He suggests that different kinds of curiosity perform different functions. He makes an association with different appetites to explain this, such as like with food or sex, which corresponds to scales of wanting, which regulate dopamine production and liking, which stimulate opioid activity in the brain. Now, again, I sort of disagree with some of this, but let me continue to explain just for the sake of a bigger picture understanding. The basic concept is that D type is transactional, such as with needing to know the answer on a test, or maybe something even more important like needing to find a cure for COVID-19. D type is based on a need and is usually something, uh, it's usually something very important. So I'm not convinced that that is actually what curiosity is or what we should understand as curiosity. I prefer calling it something entirely different. It is a motivation to learn for sure. And you can use these types of things uh, with students, um, but it's doing something more because it's required. It's obligatory or oblig. Uh, yeah. Um, I can be driven to do something by multiple internal sources. And I don't think obligation is an aspect of curiosity. Honestly, I haven't come up with the right word to describe what some refer to as D-type curiosity yet. Um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs comes to mind. D-type would be, in my opinion, at a lower level than curiosity, uh, which is, you know, saying, I want to explore. Let's, let's just refer to it as learning by necessity. You can call it curiosity if you want. I mean, we... We call the lecture-based regurgitation most students experience in school as learning, and then also going out into the world and actually experiencing the same concept as learning, though I would argue they are very, very different things. And maybe, maybe think of it this way. Eskimos have so many different words for the word snow or for snow. It allows them to differentiate between the nuance of something extremely important in their lives. Our language defines the paradigm uh, in which we can comprehend and learn. Maybe since learning is so darn important to humanity, we should have more nuanced language for it, which would change the paradigms of how we understand it. Either way, uh, a major point to make between DNI is that our schools are full of D-type curiosity, and I think our schools are lacking actual curiosity or I-type. What Littman refers to as I-type is what I think our schools need more of and what really drives learning and the creative process. This is because it's an internal drive by something the learner assigns inherent value to. It's related to pleasure rather than need. It breeds in a stress-free atmosphere where we don't necessarily need to know the information. We want to. Without going too deep into this now, it's widely observed that creativity functions much better in lower stress scenarios uh, when and when intrinsically motivated. This is the type of curiosity that produces awe and wonder, the pleasure that results from discovering something new, to boldly go where no one has gone before. Captain Picard, if you are familiar with Star Trek, uh, is um, our next generations. Captain Picard is one of my favorite all-time uh, fic fiction uh, fictional characters. Uh, he craves exploration because he loves it, not because he has to. 
the degree of our ability to interpret something cognitively bears directly on how much we like it. This connects to the term processing ease or fluency. Simply, the more competency we have in digesting certain categories of novel stimuli, the more we like the stimuli. This is how learning traditionally works. As we get better at something, as we become more fluent in interpreting new and stimulating information, we come to like it more. It being both the state of unknowing and the search for information that satisfies it. Captain Picard gets better and better at being a leader, at leading his crew through the depths of space as he overcomes more and more challenges. He's one of the most fluent leaders, I think, in fiction that I can think of, and his fluency, which is motivated by an intense curiosity, is what carries him to grow and get better and then want more. Curiosity, in fact, has been deeply connected to the need to explore. But let's stop for a moment and just define curiosity. Um, The definition is that it exists as a group of behaviors and traits that ping-pongs between the urge to probe the unknown out of intrinsic epistemic, uh, epistemic desire and the need to close gaps of understanding that cause us discomfort. The discomfort element will be more clear in a little bit. Curiosity doesn't sit well. Eventually, it drives us to do things, to make things happen. Humans have often been described as having an intrinsic need to explore, to go farther, to see what's over the next horizon. I mean, why did we leave Africa and eventually cross into the Americas from Europe through the land bridge in Alaska, which actually um, has a name? Uh, It's called Beringia. Get it? Beringia? Pretty awesome, (laughs) I, I think. Some of the motivation behind this migration was definitely out of necessity and need, maybe more D-type, but we also know there was a great deal of curiosity and even a sense of awe at play with uh, early humans as they made this migration. We needed to leave Europe because of climate change, but also move towards certain directions because of awe and curiosity. Uh, For instance, Beringia was an extremely beautiful land. Again, this was the Alaskan land bridge. Um, And it was beautiful largely because it was new. Previously, uh, it was covered by the ocean. And um, lots of plants and vegetation, was. it was lush. Uh, We know of this um, through archaeology. And any early human would want to be here because of our affection towards this really beautiful landscape. We have an inherent sense of wonder built in for beautiful landscapes and uh, for a reason, probably. And this beauty drove many humans to keep going in search of what else was beyond just Beringia. And if, like, kind of asking the question, right, if Beringia is awesome, what else is awesome? Let's keep going. Unfortunately, Beringia eventually flooded again and it became an ocean again, as we all know. Uh, And actually, this happened almost overnight, It flooded very quickly, and many humans likely drowned as a result. Uh, So the humans that left earlier out of curiosity survived. That's not to say that sometimes our desire to explore and uh, and search for things like thrill don't get us in trouble as well. 
Um, this actually brings to mind the concept of impulsivity. If we look at techniques for classroom management as a whole, they almost seem designed to inhibit impulsivity. We keep students engaged in such a way that structures, thoughts, reduces flashes of emotion, and curious asides are kept to a minimum. And there's some good reason for this, as perseverance, focus, delayed gratification, etc., are all important ways to get stuff done. Uh, I have a very impulsive student right now who is extremely high on curiosity. Um, this person, this student, comes in the almost every class period excited and ready to to make and explore and the challenge for this student is more directing that energy and getting it to focus on one thing to persevere long enough to see it through and learn something from that impulsivity is a commonly referred to trait of curiosity it comes on suddenly and at times unexpectedly depending on the circumstances it can be transient in that it comes on suddenly and might disappear after a certain amount of time but what is but what is that replaced by and what are we as teachers doing to feel that or replace it or direct it this is the t the question i think teachers need to be asking right now how do we direct that energy once it starts to fade might I suggest the creative process has a roadmap for that quest? Um, the power of impulse is often intense and can result from many different things. I don't think we should actively discourage it. I find that the students who easily experience it are lucky, and I enjoy working with these students to focus their excitement in positive ways and welcome their random thoughts during a class conversation. Getting back to the types of curiosity for just a minute, though, because it goes beyond the D and the I-type discussion we recently had, and I think it's important to frame curiosity in these different lights. Again, everyone is different with unique needs. So here are some different types. There's D and I, though at my current point of view, there is only I. <laughs> and the following uh, types would be categorized to me as different types or focuses within I-type curiosity. Keep in mind that all of this comes from uh, research that I've done, that other people have done on curiosity, and that while it might confuse things at times a bit further, I find that thinking in these terms expands our bag of tricks when focusing on that individual in class. Different students tend to lean towards one type of curiosity as their main source of motivation. And really quickly, just to use D-type D in a, a positive light, um, if I were to make a scavenger hunt for my son in which he has to identify sight words in order to win the prize, I'm really using D-type to get him to learn to read by like focusing on learning these, these sight words uh, so he can win a prize. And um, that does work in certain contexts fairly well. So, um, so here's some types. One, one type of another type of curiosity is perceptual curiosity. Perceptual curiosity involves interest in and giving attention to novel perceptual stimulation and motivates visual and sensory inspection. Think artists, but it's not just something artists have or don't have. There is also sensory curiosity. People high in sensory curiosity seek stimuli in order to provoke a sensory response, often associated with risk or thrill. It relates to perceptual curiosity, but it's different in that it is motivated more by adventurous exploratory behaviors. Think more like thrill seekers, mountain climbers, skydivers, etc. They're really uh, experiencing a sensory 
curiosity. Perceptual curiosity is also very like visual and uh, experiential, but not to the extent. And it's a little bit more on the visual. Um, another kind is uh, epistemic uh, curiosity, which is the desire to obtain new knowledge, uh, like things like concepts, ideas, and facts um, that are expected to stimulate intellectual interest or eliminate gaps in knowledge. So this is where I would say like D-type is a little bit more appropriate in a, in a positive light because filling in gaps of knowledge is, is very D-type focused. But I think that this uh, epistemic curiosity still nurtures the the I type. And think of this person as the one who reads a lot of nonfiction. Uh, students more motivated by this type might do better in school, but are also very likely to get bored with school as well, because the day-to-day -day routine might not fulfill their or stimulate their intellectual interest. Um, in a note, I'm interested by the motivation to read for pleasure within these frames, uh, specifically those who read fiction. One might think they, they lean towards epistemic, which if you don't know that word, uh, I should have defined it a moment ago, uh, it relates to knowledge or to the degree of its validation. But I could make a good argument that a lot of teachers are motivated more by perceptual curiosity because of how the imagination is activated in a sensory kind of way, how the images are formed and stimulate in the mind. I'll go into why I think imagination is so crucial with regards to literacy in the episode that focuses on imagination, which I like to say, again, is the light uh, if curiosity is a soil. But getting back to the types of curiosity, last but not least, is a lesser referred to type of curiosity, which is interpersonal curiosity which is something def also defined as social curiosity, a term that's used more widely. Uh, so picture in your mind a textbook extrovert, uh, but one who does more questioning and listening rather than the talking. A person with interpersonal curiosity is deeply interested in and driven by meeting and learning about people. This can be profoundly important as we learn a lot from each other. I also think it's something we are lacking as a society which I'll touch on near the end of um, part two on this, on curiosity. But again, like think about all these different types and try to think of a student who relates to one more than the other. How might you nurture their curiosity to get them to explore their learning more purposefully? It uh, also might be helpful to highlight two distinct types of learning that are often defined, though there are definitely more than two. Um, but I won't get into it because I just want to keep things a little bit more focused. This is already going to be a fairly long episode. So there's uh, institutional learning, what is often referred to as like capital L learning. This uh, type uh, is what most students experience. It's a type in which institutions define the parameters for learning. Think graduation requirements, standards, grades, tests, and all the other words that most teachers actually cringe in response to. And then there's exploratory learning, which is going to be a very important term for uh, the rest of both parts of this episode. Think about the story I gave regarding my four-year-old exploring the forest and finding the bug. Also think recess or maybe organizations like Girl Scouts. This tends to be, but doesn't necessarily need to be, student-centered, uh, whereas institutional learning is usually teacher-centered. 
uh, but also doesn't have to be either. So exploratory learning is what we think of more as authentic learning. That's another term that might be associated with it. I wonder how many of you have ever read into chaos theory a little bit. Chaos theory suggests that systems of determination that have minor deviances at the onset end up with unpredictable results. Think like the butterfly effect. Our factory-based educational systems are terrified by unpredictable results. So they observe a loud classroom in which students are all over the place doing different things, likely making a mess, maybe exploring without a set time and destination schedule as likely leading to unpredictable results, and therefore, this teacher must need remediation. Uh, but if we looked at the way humans actually learned, um, even how they have learned throughout history at the dawn of human enlightenment when we were migrating across the globe, crossing Beringia, uh, painting on cave walls, right? I'm talking the way that humans have been learning for the la uh, vast majority of time on the planet, when our modern brains were developing, evolving, there are a couple of things that are pretty clear. One, we learned outside in the natural world as an experience. And two, learning was communal and autonomous. We learned to improve our own lives from people we knew and who knew us. This is kind of a mic drop moment. These two facts are so obviously clear, simple, and huge. We learned outside in the natural world as an experience. Learning was communal and autonomous. We learned to improve our own lives from the people we knew and who knew us as it related to our world. These factors, the time and space, freedom, personal connections, and exploratory nature were all parts of the early ingredients to cultivating curiosity. This was how our brains evolved to learn and where curiosity came from. And of course, all of this was expressed through creativity, the learning event that actualized our thoughts, goals, and curiosity into something meaningful. If you look at the way humans have learned up until 100 years ago, at least 98% of our learning as modern humans, something Peter Gray focused on in his 2013 book, Free to Learn, you find that a lack of structure time to play and explore. And this is really important. The delegation of responsibility towards children was consistent across multiple hunter-gatherer societies, if not all of them. He also points out that a sense of openness and community were central tenets across all societies across the world. So again, the way that humans learned was by having responsibility, even as children, for their own learning, to direct their learning, to play, to explore. In other words, the perfect circumstances for learning was prompted by their own curiosity. Adults mostly go out of their way. Now, to control that, here's a quote from the book uh, by Peter Gray. Children come into the world burning to learn and genetically programmed with extraordinary capacities for learning. 
Within their first four years without any instruction, they can learn to walk, run, jump, and climb, to speak and understand their culture, acquiring an incredible amount of knowledge driven by an inborn instinct and innate playfulness and curiosity. Not only were children born into these tribes actively ready to learn, they were supported by adults who realized that sometimes the best thing to do is get out of the way, end quote. For 98% of our experiences with learning, it was understood that children educate themselves through self-directed play and exploration, curiosity providing that soil for the learning that grew out of it. Now today, we intervene in every aspect of our children's lives and learning and build motivation structures as exciting as passing a test so you can get to pass more tests, so you can get a piece of paper. How exhilarating. I don't think the many ways in which adults now intervene in every aspect of our children's lives can be overstated. School is just one aspect, and then there's homework, their regimented schedule of activities, and more. A friend of mine with an older, uh, with older children in high school and middle school um, and upper elementary was recently telling me about how crazy the schedule structure has become. He said kids just don't ride their bikes over to a friend's house anymore and ring the doorbell to see if anybody's home. It's now totally socially expected that playdates are scheduled well in advance. Another important aspect of Gray's work is realizing not just that curiosity is born out of freedom, but that it is deeply connected to the natural world. I've always been a fan of exploratory learning processes for this reason, but this doesn't mean that they have to go outside. And, um, and engaging with green nature, uh, everyone thinks of when using the word nature. Although I think it is very important, in my experiences, the term natural world has shifted based on human experience and the realities of the time. I have witnessed students accessing their curiosity by exploring their house, or their relationships, or even their phones within the right paradigm. For this purpose, I like to think of natural world, quote unquote, as anything a person experiences in their lives naturally, without intrusion or a prescription. What matters is that the child or student feel inherently connected to the concept or activity, and that this is different for everyone based on their environment, lives, and biology. Again, being actually outside is helpful. Um, there are multiple studies that show being in nature with the trees and the grass, the outside air on your skin, the sounds of birds, etc., reduces stress and anxiety, even mitigating learning challenges such as ADHD and more. Ah, stress and anxiety again. I often find it amazing that in our efforts to improve the world through technological advances and stronger societies, we have managed to produce so much stress and anxiety. And oh boy, are our students feeling that stress? I covered a lot of this stuff in my last podcast episode that regarded homework and some other learning structures. I think it's impossible to talk about schooling without broaching the topics of social emotional learning and also equity for that matter. And wouldn't you know, curiosity seems to be a cure or access point for all of it. The mindful attitudes of curiosity help you welcome all of your senses, noting what you see, smell, hear, touch, and taste. Each detail acts like a tiny hook that morphs our brain to Velcro vivid, powerful, and positive experiences. For instance, Dr. Shauna Shapiro writes in her book, 
good morning, I love you, that neuroscience is proving that kindness and curiosity, and she believes the two are related, can have a significant impact on your brain. Studies show that when we are judgmental and shaming instead of kind and curious, the learning centers of the brain shut down, shuttling resources to our survival instincts and robbing us of the resources we need to effectively respond. And as noted with regard to some neuroscience, studies have found that curiosity strengthens the learning centers of the brain, bathing our system in dopamine and or opioids, dopamine being one of the brain's neurotransmitters responsible for learning and rewards. This expands our perspective and opens us to greater creativity and resourcefulness. Further research has found that when people are curious about a subject, they're better at learning and more importantly, remembering the information in part because curiosity activates our reward system. And opioids, this is not should not really come as very surprising. Not only are we better learners when activating our inner curiosity and as a result positive and empathetic views of the world, but we're better innovators too. A recent study of engineers and engineering students conducted at Stanford University found that a curious, i.e. open, kind, mindful attitude was the strongest predictor of innovation. Finally, researchers have identified curiosity as a significant factor for stress tolerance and as protection against depression. New research shows that depression is linked to a lack of novelty and curiosity. The evidence shows that people who are suffering from depression have a shrunken hippocampus and are unable to recognize novelty. Keep that term in mind too, uh, or brain part, hippocampus. Uh, it's a really important part of the brain that's going to come up a lot in this discussion about curiosity. Um, interestingly as well, dopamine levels spike when the brain encounters novelty, which activates pleasure centers and encourages us to learn and explore. Curiosity and by extension, creative experiences are essential aspects of the human experience and lead to growth-related behaviors as a, a greater sense of meaning and as life satisfaction. Keep that, again, keep these concepts, uh, hippocampus and also of novelty on the side of your brain for a minute. There are also biological and evolutionary aspects of our minds that can be negatively exploited, such as our heightened response to negative emotions and why we are so prone to clickbait on the internet. A negativity bias used, used to be helpful for our ancestors as they scanned the savanna for danger. But we don't live in that world anymore. Now, mindfulness, through curiosity, helps us Velcro positive experiences into the brain and balance our negativity bias. Continuing with this train of thought, um, neuroscientist, psychologist Nir Eyal describes in his book, Indistractable, how to control your attention and choose your life. He describes even further how curiosity is a source of growth and healing. In this circumstance, he is mainly referring to changing an unwanted behavior and how we often view the tool as a problem. Think of the tool as the phone teachers are upset about their students checking all the time. Um, and that one on the most basic neural level, our brain is always trying to either move towards something or away from it. Think back to the curiosity de definition and how it is often defined as our brain seeking to close a knowledge gap. 
Basically, at its most basic level, the brain is all about rewards and avoidance. Ayel says, when you're feeling lonely, you check Facebook. When you're uncertain, you Google. When you're bored, you check the news or Reddit or sports or Pinterest or whatever. All of these things cater to the uncomfortable sensations taking place in your brain as a response of avoidance to the world. We have so many opportunities and sources of avoidance with social media. What it's not necessarily about is seeking the phone and social media on its own merit. And he says that at the most basic level, again, human behavior is motivated by a desire to escape discomfort. Social media and even more harmful things are often a way to escape unwanted feelings. Keep keep with this train of thought. It might feel like I'm segueing a little bit, but it, it will all come back to make a lot of sense. And also, by the way, if you hear my kids uh, in the background, I apologize because we are obviously dealing with the, the quarantine situation and, uh, you know, the homeschooling or our kids are always around us right now and they're running around in the background and I can hear them. So Ayel, in his book, goes on to suggest that if all human behavior is spurred by a desire to escape discomfort, that means time management is pain management. This isn't exactly the point of why I'm bringing it up, but again, we'll get to that soon. But first, this crazy thing I learned about a study done by Timothy Wilson in which they, um, in this study, they put people in a room alone with a band on their arm. So the room is totally, it has absolutely nothing in it and nothing for the person to do except for one thing, and it regards the band on their arm. This band is connected to a button, and if you push it, you will feel pain by electric shock. And that's it. Nothing to do except push a button that will make you feel pain. Here's the kicker. Something like 60% of men and 20% of women push the button, knowing full well it will cause pain. That's crazy, right? We are so uncomfortable being bored that we just want to feel something, anything. We need any kind of sensation, and this is by design. Again, think back to the nature and origins of curiosity as fueling our desire to learn. Why we would get up from where we're at and migrate somewhere else. The feeling of being bored is meant to motivate us towards doing something. This is not necessarily a bad thing. And think about this in context with how our students are feeling on a daily basis and why they might be checking their phones too often. We form these habits by pattern matching, by learning what provides relief. Pattern matching is something the brain is really good at. So if the brain feels discomfort and finds something that relieves it, that's what it forms the habit around. And phones are always there. Again, let's say the bad habit is checking your phone when you're supposed to be getting work done. It might not be the phone that's the problem. Remember that we would push a button that brings us pain rather than be bored. It's important to note that strict abstinence does not work and often backfires when trying to fix a perceived problem such as maybe checking your phone too much or many other issues. Like making a law against phone usage or locking the phone in a drawer doesn't work because it actually trains your brain to have discomfort over the idea of giving up the phone. And then when you give into the discomfort, 
this action activates pleasure centers in the brain for relieving that discomfort. So you are actually just responding to the discomfort of giving something up, which fuels your desire and negative motivations. Rather, and this is where we get to the point, Dr. Ayal says, you should employ something like the 10-minute rule instead. This is where you tell yourself that you can give in to that distraction when you're working on a big project. You can give in to that distraction of picking up the phone in 10 minutes. This 10 minutes leads to something psychologists call surfing the urge. When it comes to these uncomfortable emotional states, we know that they don't last forever. Even though we feel like they will in the moment, emotions are like waves and we can ride them like a surfer. So when you feel that urge, you put it aside, set a, set a timer for 10 minutes. And this is the really, really important part. The, the point I'm trying to make about this that brings it all back to our, our current topic You set that timer for 10 minutes, and then you need to reflect on the emotions that you're feeling. And this is the super, super important part. You approach that reflective conversation with yourself with curiosity as the mindset. Being curious about why it is you're feeling the way you do. Dr. Ayal likens it to having a conversation with a caring friend. The caring friend is curiosity. Why did I throw that hammer across the room in anger? Side note, my son recently threw a hammer across the room in anger, and we had to have a conversation about it. We are struggling with the new social isolation, and a lot of the norms in his life have been upended. His outdoor school was canceled, so he isn't having access to friends and exploring the world through play and reflection like he's used to. Anyway, you should talk to yourself about why you threw the hammer, or why you want to pick up the phone like a good friend who has a good deal of compassion, whose only goal is to see you grow through self-reflection and learning. This is the paradigm of curiosity. Ayel continues that normally, when people find themselves in this state, they fall into two categories. They're either the blamers or the shamers. Blamers blame the phone or Facebook. It's social media, the shamers say. There's something wrong with me. I'm not cut out for this work. This causes more internal triggers, which cause us to seek more escapes and more and more distractions. So how, and again, how do you diffuse this? You don't become contemptuous. You become curious. For 10 minutes, your job is to reflect on that sensation and to feel that sensation with curiosity rather than contempt. Then I can give in to the distraction if I choose to. The big, the big takeaway for us as well is to recognize the significance of, curious, of a curious mind and to realize how powerful the state of boredom is that many students feel in relation to their schoolwork and how that is impacting bad habits such as the social media distractions. The problem is not only the phone, it's the culture and environment around that phone and then a lack of freedom to explore, to be themselves, coupled with a very abstinence approach to the way most people try to solve things. Another takeaway is that the smartphone has illuminated rather than caused the problem. We have introduced this vice, this device that can be used to distract or used to cause traction into a world where people are hungry for distraction. Why are we so hungry for distraction? It should cause us to ask why students are seeking that distraction so often and what we should do about that. Perhaps a student 
has a lot of social curiosity and connecting to other people since they don't get to connect to them maybe in the classroom because of the structure in that classroom and the being be quiet approach to learning that they need to connect to a person via social media. Again, all of this is also the source of growth mindset. If producing something of value is an inherent aspect of the creative process, then cultivating that value begins here. Curiosity is also an important map for experiencing awe and wonder. It's the way a child feels when anticipating a wrapped present. Curiosity brings about a state of awe as we stare into the universe of knowledge and confront novel subjects, and it motivates us to want more, to learn more. Awe is something we feel when the sheer magnitude of stimulation is overwhelming, when what we perceive is so vast and too much for our minds to get a handle on, but we try anyway. When did you and what were the environmental settings that most recently made you feel awe or wonder? So this is where I want to take a stop on this curiosity talk um, and end part one. And then in part two, I'm going to, which will be slightly shorter than part one, I'm going to dive more into some specifics and explore a little bit more about curiosity. I'm hoping that I've given, uh, provided a really great groundwork to help with that conversation, that more practical conversation. And I'm also going to be working on some um, online courses that kind of go in more depth because I don't think a podcast format is exactly the best place for um, maybe practical instruction. So what I'm asking for you to do is just think about some of the things I've said regarding curiosity and how that applies to student learning. How can you use it in today's weird situation of quarantine and e-learning that a lot of teachers are employing for the first time? What are you asking your students to do? A lot of students told me um, that, uh, that they were already getting a lot of reports, a lot of writing, and that they asked me to please not ask, have them do a critique where they had to write out some response to something because that's all they're going to be doing. And so I started to ask myself, how can I allow them to use this time to explore learning in their own ways and connect to their world, which is being kind of upended at the moment? So thanks for your time, and I look forward to talking in part two about curiosity. Cheers.